Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, Sam Morris, and with me are my co-hosts, Andy Bowman. Hello. And Tessa Suela. Hello. Joining us today is David Bax of Battleship Pretension. Hello. Welcome to week one of Spooktober. That is such a great and original name that's never been used in anything before. <laughs> it, you know, and also we are recording this on the second day of fall. So yeah, Spooktober, we're ready. Okay. <laughs> in this episode, David sleepwalks through the conversation. I try to figure out who thought it was a good idea to have Frankenstein's monster play an Egyptian Dracula. Tessa watches a more violent version of Home Alone. And Andy embraces American consumerism in the original version of a now overplayed trope. So, David, we're really glad to have you with us. I'm really glad to be here. And I'm really glad to be celebrating the beginning of fall uh, and, and the Halloween season. It is a very scary 87 degrees here in Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and, and really, you know, what better way to celebrate October by starting it on September 22nd. It's really <laughs> on on brand with this year. So this year, I, mean, I know I've seen like the people in my neighborhood who decorate for Halloween. They started September 1st because I think people are just like ready to like move on with with 2020. Just just like they want to they want to get to October uh, get, or get to Halloween in September. We'll have Christmas done by Thanksgiving and then we can all start over. I think that's the idea. I don't know if you saw the uh, Emmys this past uh, Sunday. I did. Uh, so Reese Witherspoon and uh, Carrie Washington yeah, had that right. bit about New Year's Eve. Yeah. yeah. I, I think we're all ready. So, okay. So we kind of have a little bit of a, I wouldn't call it a war of attrition yet. It hasn't gotten ugly. But we, yeah. we kind of have this ongoing battle on Monkey Off My Backlog. And the two sides are those of us who make lists for our pop culture, and those of us who prefer to live in chaos. <laughs> and I understand that, that you, are off, uh, you are definitely on the, the, the right side of this, the, the <laughs> team list. Is that right? I mean, yeah, I make, I make so many lists about what I have watched and what I plan to watch and what I have listened to and what I plan to listen to, what I have read and what I plan to read, plan to read is that, that, that like, it's almost like, List making is my like interest first, and then like movies and music and comic books and and stuff all come after. So yeah, I'm a, a I'm an inveterate dedicated list maker. Uh, I, <laughs> I I like it just just growing up before the internet. You know, you got information where you could find it. I remember having it was like a my parents had a Leonard Malton. Uh, movie mm -hmm. anthology almanac and i just remember reading entries through it and going i'd like to watch that one day yeah so when did you start like writing stuff down and like pre-internet where did you keep it that's that's the thing for me is like the memories of before i had like a you know a notes app on my phone or like a google doc or a google drive or whatever just having like reams just like of, of notebook notebook paper that, that had all my all my lists on it yeah i think i actually if I recall correctly, I took a pen and started like putting asterisks beside the movies in in the actual book. 
So David, do you you said you use like a notes app and a Google Doc? Do you ever use social media like Letterboxd oh, yeah, or very, Goodreads yeah. or very like much that. lead. I uh, very much use Letterboxd. Yeah, Goodreads I haven't used because it would just make me realize how far behind I've fallen uh, on reading. <laughs> and like, that's uh, I'm a, a public transit guy. Back when we could do that, and when I like worked in an office, like, and that's that was like the two to three hours a day that I did all my reading. And I and the yeah the one part of my habit that it, my my habits that has taken the biggest hit in quarantine times is reading i am so far behind as my wife has liked to point out the quarantine hasn't stopped me from buying comic books it's just stopped me from reading them so i have it in <laughs> uh, so in addition to my to watch lists i have a physical stack reminding me of how far behind i am on i don't know I'm trying to think of immortal hulk or whatever david have you given the best comic book TV show a shot yet and watched Harley Quinn? Uh, no, I I hear that's good though. It is uh it is a very surprisingly good animated show. You know what? I'll have to add it to the list. <laughs> right, it's it's on it's on HBO Max right now. Uh, they just renewed it for a third season, so I'm super happy. And it's not exact, not at all what you'd think it would be. Well, I can't watch it then until I kick Roku to the curb. I gotta I, I gotta get rid of Roku. <laughs> I, I can't watch Search Party. I can't watch. Harley Quinn, all this stuff. It's on HBO Max because of their stubbornness. Yeah, lists. Okay, so uh, yes, I use social media, but I also have I have multiple lists, and then I have like master lists that like dictate what order I address my lists in. Yeah, I I was going to ask you about that specifically with films. Tessa and I have worked to try to have a bit of a method to the way we we do things instead of just uh, what are we going to watch this week do, so what's your what's your method in determining what's next up or what's next up for the next few weeks i guess so that it it shifts because this is okay this is going to sound uh, crazy but i guess i'm among some of my people here cuz like i said i have multiple lists and they're they're ranked based on priority so let's say i have five lists that's roughly the stuff that like say the movie that I watched for this podcast today. I knew I had to watch it by a certain date, so it went onto the first list because it's the highest priority. I have to get this watched. And then there'll there'll be stuff that's like, I want to watch this by whatever before we do this. You know, we do this on, the, on, on my podcast or whatever. So I have... So, so the lists come in, in order of when I most need to watch them, which means that... Uh, it's the, the I love a podcast idea like Monkey Off My Backlog because it means that often the stuff that I really feel like I should get around to ends up being on the lowest priority list because I don't need to write a review or talk about it on a podcast, and so it isn't it isn't at the on on, on list number one. But let's say there's five lists that changes because sometimes many lists pop up uh, within lists and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, they're ranked in priority. And so uh, I can't address the next one until I finish the previous one. How do you determine what goes on each list? Like I'm fascinated by the idea of having multiple lists and lists within lists. So how do you decide besides ranking priority? Is it by genre or date? I'm curious. No, it's more about like... Uh, let's see. I'm trying to think of how to how to phrase this. Like how I came to be interested in the movie. So like, like I said, the first list is something that I need to either review or talk about on on, on, my, on my podcast or another podcast or whatever. Like that's the first list, and then there will be like, like I said, this other stuff that's like normally around this time of year I'd be starting my I want to see this before I make my top ten of the year list. I, I don't know 
you know, fewer, <laughs> fewer movies are coming out now, so that that list isn't quite as populated as it would normally be at the beginning of the fall. And then, like every ten episodes, Tyler and I like uh, on on Battleship Retention profile a filmmaker's career or or a, a film artist's career, actor, cinematographer, whatever. So then I'll, I'll have that list of like I want to watch this before this date. So yeah, the the top tier lists are all motivated by due dates. After that, it gets to uh, and again, this list hasn't been updated in months because there aren't uh, movies showing. But a lot of times there'll be stuff I missed in the theater, either like a first run movie that I didn't get to while I was out. And I'll put that on the list like I want to make sure I see that when I, you know, when that's uh, available to rent. Or it'll just be like a repertory thing that that I missed. Like, oh, I've never seen that classic, you know, Ernst Lubitsch film or whatever. And I missed it when it was playing at the UCLA Film and Television Archive. So I'll put that on the, on, the, on the next list. And then the final list is basically just stuff that I feel like I ought to see, I guess. Um, and that's why I never get to that list. And, and that's why I have huge uh, blind spots that I love getting to address on a podcast like this. I admire your list making. It's, it's truly, it's a work of art. I, I like what you're doing. <laughs> Keep up the good work. <laughs> the thing is, we've just addressed my movie lists. I have lists for way too much stuff. It's a, I mean, I'm glad that I'm, uh, again, among supportive people, but it is a problem. For me, my my <laughs> lists are conditional lists where I have a list of movies that I can watch if my wife is asleep. <laughs> things that she's never going to, to touch in a million years. Then I have things that I should probably watch when I'm feeling down or, or uh, you know, which recently has been all the time. So that list has been getting shorter and shorter. I, you know, it's just always a, a question of, what I'm in the mood for or what's there, but I've got lists and then, uh, you know, uh, just tons of playlists ready to go on Netflix or whatever. Um, or if things are going to get knocked off of streaming, I try to watch them quickly. And as Sam mentioned earlier, I live in chaos. <laughs> <laughs> I believe Tessa finds lists that she's like half started like around the house. It was like, Oh yeah, I meant, I meant to watch that. Yeah, that's pretty that is much. pretty much it. Like my list exists. I've said this before and I'll say it again. My list exists in note apps on my phone, on scraps of paper. There there's a list in my head where things get forgotten about and then remembered again. It's it's a whole thing. You're a monster. <laughs> <laughs> but I save that for the the moments when like my lists do get to me and every once in a while it's almost like having a cheat day where I'll like I'll, I'll, I'll like come home from having like my wife and I will like come home from having drinks. I'll be a little tipsy and I'll be like, you know what? Screw the list tonight. I'm watching. <laughs> I'm watching John Wick for the seventh time. <laughs> nice. That that's also one of our our common things we ask about is the go to. So you you've you've answered that for us. That is one of my go tos. A good go to. Yeah. It's a solid go to. Okay, now for something completely that is nothing like John Wick, unless you tell me it is because I haven't seen this one yet. We're going to go chronologically tonight. So it just happens to work out that that you are first. You're taking us all the way back to 1920. Tell us about The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. When Andy reached out to me about the doing the, this episode, he mentioned the October thing. So I was trying to think, what are the seminal horror movies that I that I haven't seen? And The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari... I'm, 
I'll admit, a hundred years after its release, it didn't exactly give me the willies, but it's a really beautiful and clearly, in retrospect, clearly a very influential film. It's um, like so many great silent films, it's also nice and short. That's always good for people who live their life by to-do lists. When there's a short movie, it means you can scratch it off the off the cross it off the list earlier. It it takes place in a small German town where there's a uh, town fair, county fair, whatever type of thing, and a this, beer fest. Uh, uh, yeah, it probably is. Um, and uh, this guy says, oh, I've got this attraction. It's this guy who's asleep uh, all the time. He he sleeps and he'll tell your fortune in his sleep if you ask him. Secretly, he is also influencing this sleepwalker at night when the town, you know, when the fair closes to go out and murder people while he's sleepwalking. So, yeah, Dr. Caligari. So Cesare, the, sleep, the sleepwalker, the somnambulist, is the the murderer, but uh, or at least the actual person actually doing the stabbing but dr caligari is the uh the one the one pulling the strings and uh of course the town gets all uh up in a in a tizzy and 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 tries to get to the bottom of of the issue but really the, the plot is kind of not the the point of of dr caligari it's what we now call uh, german expressionism taken to its logical extreme almost you know when 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 i thought about german expressionism before so much of it to me had to do with lighting because i'm very familiar with the films of fw murnau nosferatu and faust and, and stuff like that and he would use light and light and dark shadows to to create these these uh, stark angles and, and to, to sort of bisect the the frame. And of course, there's some of that uh, in the cabinet of Dr. Caligari as well. But the expressionism of it, the the abstractness of the world is goes beyond that in Caligari to where the world itself, the town itself is completely built on on sound stages and does not look or behave like reality at at all every window is a weird strange parallelogram like literally like there's a somebody like a caligari hands somebody a business card and it's like not even a, a rectangle it's like smaller on one end than the other and like gets wider as it goes because everything is just distorted and and bent and dark and 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 foreboding and you know the the and nothing is everything's constructed the the trees are and it's not even pretending not to be constructed the tree is clearly a a, a fake tree but it doesn't look like a real tree anyway it looks like this spindly demon silhouette on the horizon or or, or something and, and everything in the movie uh looks like that even the the characters on faces a lot of the times they'll have chiaroscuro type of makeup that's not pretending to be realistic just like uh black lines across uh, um caligari's forehead and stuff like that that, that uh, everything just looks so so stylized and uh, i mean i said the movie wasn't scary but kind of scary um uh, at the same time it's um it's such an easy watch and i and i sort of i i flew through the movie so so quickly um because like i said the plot i i i followed it it's not like difficult to follow but a lot of the times i was just looking at the the set um and and looking at the costumes and and makeup very cool you mentioned essentially that it's not scary but there are some scary elements to it just not where we would right maybe be trained to look. Yeah, when when like Cesare the Somnambulist is like sneaking up on somebody's win window, I'm not actually going like, oh no, look out, like, or whatever, you know. <laughs> uh, it's not that kind of 
of of scary movie, but it is foreboding, and and that I think that's where the the influential part of the thing that I'm talking about. I, you know, you can look at plenty of what we think of as even down to like Halloween decorations or like album covers. Like what we think of as scariness comes from movies like Caligari and 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 Nosferatu and, and other uh, other expressionist things of uh, of that era. So that's what I'm. That's what I'm wondering. Then you know, you mention all these aesthetic things that really hold up uh, and are very influential. You know, and of course, this is a decade before Universal really starts pumping out their their movies, which I'll talk about here in a little bit. You know, the big thing with the Universal movies is they're they're trying to create tension, and of course, that tension doesn't you know meet the test of time or anything. Is there tension in Caligari that's really developed? And and if so, is it is it still there? Yeah, I, I don't want to sound like I'm slagging the movie off. I'm just saying that's not that's not the reason that people are like me are still watching this movie a hundred years later. But there is, yeah, there there is a, a story and 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 there's a dramatic irony and there's tension and there's reveals. It it, it works on a narrative level. I'm not. Uh, I didn't mean to imply that it's uh, narratively primitive. But yes, there is tension. Oh, don't worry. I'll be doing the narratively primitive stuff later. <laughs> it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. You're fine. <laughs> how is the how is the gore level? Like, is it non non existent? I was about to say we're talking about some some pretty early stuff. The the descriptions of the murders, you know, uh, uh, which you're, you're reading on title cards, you know, you're seeing two characters frantically gesticulate and talk to another. The title card says she was stabbed through the knife through the side or something like that. So I guess if you're picturing what they're saying, I guess it's a little grisly, but no, there's no real blood or, or guts or viscera uh, in the movie. You mentioned it being shorter and I uh, covered Unchien Andalou because I didn't have any, uh, any time. Is the dream logic there kind of the same as uh, the feeling of uh, German expressionism? Oh, you mean the dream logic in Unchien Andalou? Right, right, right. Like, like the the feeling of of it being in a dream, right? Because you're in this surreal world. See, I think that's to me, and someone who knows better, correct me here. But to me, that's the difference between something that's surreal, I guess, or or removed from reality in the way that Unchien Andalou is is closer to impressionism than expressionism. So, like a movie like. Caligari is like everything's weird and not real but it's still presented like you're still kind of supposed to take it at at face value like this is the world they live in and this is the logic so like the logic of the movie is not pretzely or impenetrable it's 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 pretty straightforward whereas something that is based on or at least supposed to something like an impressionistic film or a surrealistic film is more supposed to evoke the inside of your head i guess whereas with caligari what you're looking at is what you're looking at that that that's that's the world it's all of a of a piece yeah i was just kind of thinking about contrasting the two especially since people often think that older movies are all kind of the same and they're really not yeah and also i mean you mentioned dream logic um cesara the somnambulist is not like a point of view character at all in the movie really so like the fact that he's asleep the whole movie is uh, not something that we're like experiencing. Our point of view is mostly that of the terrorized town people. We find Caligari and Cesare, Cesare, whatever how you say it, pronounce his name, uh, scary because they're uh, external and um, incomprehensible. In terms of recommendation, is this a is this a Halloween movie? Is this a movie that we should watch no matter the time of year because it's something worth watching? 
I guess that depends on the audience. I mean, if you're like me, then yes, it's a it's a Halloween movie. Um, if your idea of a Halloween movie is the Great Pumpkin or whatever, Charlie Brown, like uh, this isn't going to scratch that itch. <laughs> I could definitely see it being the kind of thing like if you have a projector and you're having a house party, like for Halloween, it's a silent movie, uh, you know, project on the wall while yeah. while the while the party's going on. That would be a cool uh, Halloween party to be at. Yeah, back when parties happened. Oh. Yeah. All right, so we're going to move from 1920 to 1932, and because we're doing things chronologically and out of order, I will either edit around this or not. Andy, you're going to be the one asking the questions here. All right, Sam, what did you watch? I watched the uh, universal horror film The Mummy. With Tom Cruise? Uh, (laughs) No. With Brendan Fraser? Still no. With Abbott and Costello? (laughs) <laughs> wow, I didn't know that you were going to have a third one. Good job. Also, no. Okay, then I know nothing about this movie. Okay, so this is the mummy that stars Frankenstein's monster, <laughs> better known as Boris Karloff. This is, so like I said, this is 1932. This is after Dracula and after Frankenstein. Uh, in fact, the, the director of the mummy, Carl uh, Frund, was the cinematographer for Dracula, and Browning was really not a very present director, story goes. So Frund is maybe the real director of Dracula, but he definitely directed The Mummy and the connections between the two show. This is not what I would call a good example of a universal horror film. Okay, so uh, what exactly is a universal horror film then? If you're Giving me, you know, this is a universal movie. Isn't it that supposed to be universal horror? If you've seen Dracula, the original Bela Lugosi Dracula. I believe it's pronounced Dracul. (laughs) Sure. You know, Bela Lugosi, his performance really holds up in a very odd way that shouldn't work, but does. Um, You know, the universal horror films don't do a real good job of holding the tension that perhaps they did for the, the audience of the early 1930s. And, and I'm making this parallel between Dracula and the mummy on purpose because this really is Dracula again. It is so such a carbon copy of Dracula. It's actually really easy to do. Imhotep, the mummy, who, by the way, is not wrapped up in, in, um, in bandages like we imagine. He's just like a, like a really orientalist idea of what an Egyptian ancient dude would look like. But he is the Dracula character. There is Helen, who is basically a combination of Mina and Lucy. We didn't even need two women in this movie. We could just do with one. We have the Jonathan Harker part is now Frank. And here's the real trick here. They're both played by David Manners. It's literally the same person. We have a Professor Pearson replacing Professor Van Helsing. And we have a Dr. Muller replacing Dr. Seward. It's really just the same movie. I mean, like, the opening music is the same. Oh, yeah. Swan Lake, again. They they used Swan Lake (laughs) as the opening music. Like, he didn't even, like, choose a different classical cue. (laughs) It's it's just, you know, and and the story is, you know, studio executives really never change. They they are, they stay golden. They're always going to be the same way. Find me another monster movie. I want to do a mummy. Make it a thing. Find a source. Well, Arthur Conan Doyle wrote a short story called The Ring of Thoth. Good enough for me. Let's do it. And that's how movies are made. Yes, yes. Uh, and that is why we've gotten, you know, the Hammer, the Hammer Mummy, the Brendan Fraser, Stephen Summers. 
series and the uh, of course the very successful universal <laughs> dark universe i wanted it to work i i really did and if we can put elizabeth moss's character into the universe there might be something yeah 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 from the invisible man maybe we have something after all i don't know we watched that at the beginning of this whole thing <laughs> <laughs> said it's the same as dracula but what's the plot we start off in the early 20s, and this is really inspired by the opening of Tutankhamun's tomb. And so the movie starts with, we open on three archaeologists, I guess. I just yell, kept yelling fortune and glory at Tessa the whole time, and it belongs in a museum. Don't open the thing. Don't open the thing. Don't open the thing. Dude opens the thing. He goes crazy and dies. Cut to 10 years later. The mummy is out. He's on the loose. He's looking for a bride. I'm sorry. This is also the Bride of Frankenstein. <laughs> but 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 the way he's going to get Bride of Frankenstein is by capturing the Mina Lucy character, again, named as Helen, Dracula style by hypnotizing her with the power of Osiris. I don't like this movie loses the thread real fast. So that's basically it. Mummy comes back from the dead. Oh, there's an extended flashback because he's a bad person and we need to know that even though this is pre-code. This movie is a mess is what I'm trying to tell you. It's like the Andy will will recognize this. Do you remember our conversation about the first season of Legends? Yes. Of Tomorrow? Yes, Tomorrow. Oh, that's yeah. right. This movie is the first season of Legends of Tomorrow. But it's better. That's the one good thing I could say about it. It's still better than the first season of Legends. But overall, you wouldn't say that the mummy is good? Absolutely not. I, I would, no. Hard pass on this one. And if you need more reasons to hard pass on it, there's a very strong thread. It comes up twice. Uh, Helen, who is half Egyptian, half, I guess, British. At the beginning of the movie, she makes this gesture toward, I, I wish it was still like ancient Egypt and not this modern thing that we have today. And then later on, when uh, he has like this uh, in his Fortress of Solitude, he has this <laughs> mirror pool that is like a television screen or a movie screen. And, and she, look, she gets to see the way it was. And she's like, oh, it's so nice. Th this, is, this is very clearly a, a race issue and an Islamophobic issue coming up. So we've got that really running through this movie too. So it's just it's just hitting on all cylinders. David, have you seen The Mummy? <laughs> uh, I've, I've never seen it. I've never, uh, I have seen a number of movies that were shot by Carl Freund and he directed at least one movie that I really love called Mad Love with Peter Lorre. Is the movie at least nice to look at? I mean, Carl Freund is one of the most celebrated cinematographers of the era. Er, era. Is, it, is it a pretty movie? Oh, yeah, I'd say so. I mean, I think it's really shot well, and it does clearly maintain the aesthetic of Dracula, which has always had something going for it, too. And like this this effect of like the, the mirror pool that he has in his room is a really neat special effect. I don't know how much, you know, he had to do with that, but it is nice to look at. I will say it was interesting seeing Boris Karloff not buried under layers and layers of, <laughs> of of makeup although you do get to see there is a really cool effect where he like comes to life like you see him as like a corpse mm. and then he like turns into a real person and so like that was pretty cool too um so like the specials there are a couple of really cool effects here but i i think for me i, I mean i don't it sounds like it was for you too sam that the orientalism of the whole thing kind of ruined it mm. in a lot of ways yeah, I mean, so in as much as we're talking about authorship at this point, which I'm not really sure is, you know, really been instantiated in Hollywood yet, 
but he's clearly doing a good thing with cinematography. But I kind of wish I'd watched The Invisible Man instead. Um, Carl Farn has always been very fascinating to me because he like was this great cinematographer. He made all these great, he shot all these great movies like Metropolis, you know, these very famous movies. And then in the early thirties, he spent like three years directing a bunch of movies, the mummy and, and mad love and, and some other ones. And then just like, I guess got that out of his system and went back to being a cinematographer <laughs> the rest of his career and shot movies like famous movies like Key Largo and stuff. It's so it's it's so strange to me that it, like it, I guess I, you think of that as like oh he graduated to directing but not not for him. That's really interesting. And Key Largo has been on my list for a long time. So Andy, we're gonna skip all the way from the 30s to the 70s. Tell us about Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. So uh, Dawn of the Dead is a George Romero flick. I'm just going to go ahead and go on record since we are all talking about classics. Uh, George Romero's best movie is Martin. I highly recommend. Anyway, this is a zombie movie. It's a sequel to Night of the Living Dead, his very famous and free to watch, uh, completely rights free movie that you can just watch on YouTube. Uh, is one of the earliest examples of this early wave and popularization of, of zombies. And it is a movie about the zombie apocalypse slowly happening and a bunch of well not a bunch really just four people taking shelter at a shopping mall and there's a lot of kind of not very subtle references to uh, American consumerism and uh, zombie mentality of the herd that just wants to keep shopping but yeah it's it's a zombie movie I don't really know how to describe it better than that it's a zombie movie and it's kind of predictable so why did you wait so long? I mean, Dawn of the Dead is is a seminal zombie movie. Like, it's one of the first popular ones in the U.S. So how, why has it been on your list for so right. long? Right, and, and that's the thing. It's it's a seminal movie. It's been referenced and parodied and, you know... Uh, and remade. Yeah, yeah, and remade. Uh, I haven't seen that yet, but I hear Zack Snyder, who I normally do not like, did some very interesting things with, like, the quality of the film, like, a, as a like that the film quality degrades over the run of the movie. Hmm. Anyway, I have heard everything about this movie or, you know, so I thought I really thought I kind of knew the entire setup and all the, the beats, this movie. So I, it was a movie I didn't really need to see. And then Tessa, something happened. And what was that? Andy, I saw how long the movie was. Ah, uh, Andy's Andy's kryptonite under, under a hundred minutes. The, the the movie is two and almost two and a half hours long. Oh, okay. And I thought to myself, whoa, whoa, whoa. How the are they going to make this movie last that long? I, I thought it was just people come to, to mall, zombies attack. And there's four of them. There's only four people, so they're, they're going to die pretty quick, aren't they? But no, this Listen, if they can make if they can make 17 million hours of Walking Dead in a season, they can make a two and a half hour movie. Come on. Well well and and that's the thing. This movie takes its time setting itself up. It really takes its time. And by saying it takes its time, I don't mean it's boring. One of the most interesting thing about any zombie movie is the beginning. Right? How do people react? What are the the zombie rules? These are all things covered at the start of this movie. Uh, they don't even get to the shopping mall until after the first half hour. So you're kind of forced to live in this world a little bit and understand the tensions and the fears of the people. There's this sense of foreboding, like, you know, that, that they 
they won't win. You kind of already get this idea at the beginning that it's a losing battle, or partly because humans refuse to decapitate the dead bodies because you know they have emotional responses. Uh, there's all these unknowns, and early on, you see the police officer uh, who's planning on running away. Basically, like you know, there are all these people who are. You're supposed to be in these camps, right? These government-led camps. You keep hearing news, uh, news radio or broadcasts in the background saying, like, okay, well, you do not stay in a private re- residence no matter how safe, blah, blah, blah. Report to all these places. You get to experience the police kind of cleaning up an area and doing a... I, oh man, it's, it's 70s. Uh, taking on a Puerto Rican gang. And there's a, a lot, a good deal of racial slurs there. And as the SWAT team is taking care of this, they get hit with a few zombies because people haven't been taking care of that. And uh, you see the zombies, and I have to be honest, it was hard not to laugh. The zombie makeup in this is just blue. The makeup effects are impressive for the time and the budget. This is a movie that you see every every dime that they had in this budget, and they really try to make it spread but the zombies are incredibly slow moving and uh just pale blue and they look almost comical they even do some frankenstein sorry frankenstein's monsters sam because <laughs> you're you're welcome they they do they do that kind of reaction to things like fire they and they're all mumbling yeah yeah so that's what dawn of the dead is it's uh just a very standard zombie movie this is a complete blasphemy thing you just said. Um, Dawn of the Dead is a, is, is a masterpiece. And if you think of it as standard, it's because uh, it's one of the most influential movies of the, of, of, of the genre. And I think it fully earns its two and a half hour runtime because uh, what George Romero, as essentially the inventor of zombie movies as we know them, understood immediately is that the drama comes more from the tension among the survivors than it does from the threat of getting your brains eaten or whatever, which isn't even really the, the brains thing comes from a non Romero franchise. But uh, I absolutely, I love Dawn of the Dead and my, my favorite parts of the movie are in it, you know, in addition to the gore effects, my favorite, my favorite parts of the movie are just seeing these people try to force a sense of normalcy on their lives in, in the, in the middle of the, all this and try and, and try to navigate how to reestablish their uh, microcosm of a, of a society with these, uh, a few people living in, in, in a, in a shopping mall. Right. I, I, I love that movie. David. And here's the thing. I completely agree with you. I was stunned. I, I was dreading the, the, the slow pacing and I was dreading all this, but I was stunned one how well done of a movie this is the zombies are yes they're a ever-present thing around them but they're also not really a threat the people the the survivors run through them right it's almost like a game to them at some points um yeah yeah you know the 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 zombies are are not a threat but at the same time until there's enough of them right right And and it's like uh you feel a weird sense of tension you know, even though these people, uh, these zombies look kind of silly and also I, there's probably an issue with the blood being in HD and, uh, being like super, super comically bright red. But I mm-hmm. was, I was, I was feeling real tense for every moment because 
this is not a, a horror movie with jump scares. You see the zombies slowly moving on these people and you're screaming to yourself, look around, look around. But at the same time, the survivors are so smart about everything. And uh, one of the assumptions I had about early zombie movies was that the people were really dumb, you know, and they they didn't think about things uh, because, uh, you know, I'm sure everyone's been a part of those uh, in the early aughts. The, well, how would you survive a zombie apocalypse, you know, and and everyone just thinking that they know better better than uh, anyone else. And no, Romero really tackled a bunch of these thoughts and ways to survive super early on. Plus, there's something just really delicious about the survivors, like the American survivors of the zombie apocalypse living mm-hmm. in a shopping mall, like trying to survive. Like they're in like an attic or or something like this really remote part of the shopping mall, but they're getting all their supplies from like the stores and like dodging the zombies, like you said. And I mean, there's a lot, obviously, like you said, Andy, about consumerism, but like living in a shopping mall is just such a, it's such an interesting right. And setting. one of the early things that they do is lock down the shopping mall and kill all the zombies in there. And killing all the zombies is such a, uh, a boring part. Romero doesn't bother showing it, right? That, that's not where the tension comes. They have all the time in the world. They don't need to worry about these zombies at all. They can take their time. They can pop a few. They can hide for a little bit, wait for them to disperse, come back, pop a few more, whatever it is. There's this tragic sense that the, the soundtrack and the sound editing are, are beautiful. And there's this tragic sense of like, they're just pretending that everything's normal. They're just pretending, you know, they're, they're having fancy dinners at restaurants because, you know, one of them cooks and it's so sad and it's it's oh i i cannot recommend this movie enough i will say early on it totally caught me by surprise how little gore there was early on and then the last sequence happens which uh is incredibly go just over the top and gory and wonderful it just everything about this is great i completely understand why it's known as a classic please if you have any interest in zombie movies Watch first of all, watch Night of the Living Dead first, and then watch this. This is wonderful. Yeah, that's what I mean. That's what George Romero wrote. Like he's obviously known as this, you know, horror maestro, uh, which he which he was. But he wrote like character piece dramas. That's like uh, that's really what all of his stuff was was about. And there's a lot of obviously uh, social political or allegory in 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 his movies uh, and stuff. But he wrote classic horror movies because he wrote complex relatable sympathetic sometimes frustrating characters that seem real and yeah that, yeah that you'd be willing to spend two and a half hours with yeah and one of the early early interactions that i just love now is one of the characters peter is is black and he's very tall and the white woman asks you know oh did you leave anyone behind as they're running away they said oh brothers and she, she says uh, street brothers or real brothers <laughs> And there's this look across the character's face. He's like, okay, she means well. Yeah. I'm just going, going to, but there, even, even then, like the incredulity is, is there like, this is not, this is not something that's uh, okay to have just really asked in that way. There, there's a lot of fascinating things. And, and I have to say, uh, Romero, after seeing, uh, night of living dead and this, He's up on my list of like quality directors and you you mentioned character pieces. Martin is an amazing character piece. 
Andy, you described this movie as gory, over the top, and wonderful. We'll see if it's two out of three or three out of three for the last movie that we're talking about today. We're going to come into the 80s and talk about a nightmare on Elm Street. Tessa. So I will say first, I had no idea until I actually saw the title card for this movie that it was a nightmare on Elm Street. For some reason, all this time, I thought it was Nightmare on Elm Street. All the nightmares. It could be an anthology series. Yeah, I I definitely did not understand what the title of this was. And actually, what is an anthology? There was a syndicated tv version called freddy's nightmares (laughs) yeah so i mean this is obviously the beginning of like a large a large franchise um in a lot of ways but the original was in 1984 and that's what i watched it was directed written and directed by wes craven and i actually watched this because i put up a twitter poll a couple weeks ago and asked uh i wanted to catch up on a classic slasher that's been on my list for a while you all the listeners chose nightmare um and so i watched it a couple of days ago and uh, I have lots of opinions, <laughs> but I, I liked it. Actually. I, it was not really what I was expecting. It stars uh, Heather um, Langenkamp, John Saxon, Ronnie Blakely, and Johnny Depp in his first ever film. It actually says introducing Johnny Depp. He is so young. I actually did not recognize him at first. Um, and then uh, Robert England as, of course, Freddy Krueger. Very iconic villain, obviously, and I'll talk about him in, in a moment. The, the basic premise of this film is that in this fictitious town of Springwood, Ohio, these teenagers suddenly start dropping like flies. They are all dying um, in very mysterious, gory ways. And Nancy, um, who is a the, uh, sort of the police chief's daughter, discovers that they are being stalked and killed um, by this horribly disfigured mysterious man with knives on his hands and a really dope sweater who is and when he kills them in in their sleep um they die in in the real world as well and of course he is freddy krueger and freddy krueger is you got to put him up there with mike myers and jason and all of these other slasher sort of iconic roles but that's that's the basic summary of what A Nightmare on Elm Street is. And I will say, unfortunately, where we watched it, the synopsis basically gave the whole plot. <laughs> the, like there's there was no way to escape escape some of the spoilers. Um, but I will try not to spoil it while talking about it. But that's also I mean, when you come to see a slasher movie like Nightmare on Elm Street, you're probably not that worried about getting spoiled. You're there to see teenagers get killed in creative ways, right? I mean that's true, um, and that's and that's is mainly what this movie is. I mean the the really interesting part to me, and I, I know we've already talked about Dream Logic at least once during this episode, but the really full you full circle, we came all the way back. There is a lot of Dream Logic in this in this film. What was interesting to me was the ways in which you know all of these characters are having nightmares, and it's kind of a shared nightmare in some ways because they're all seeing Freddy, you know, stalking them. But the beauty of this film is that it's actually really difficult to tell when the characters are awake and when they're asleep, which is part of where I think the tension and the fear actually comes from. Because honestly, watching this, the the actual horror of it wasn't that scary. There are some really disturbing images and a couple of really interesting jump scares, but it's not a movie that I like. I wasn't scared to fall asleep afterwards like some people, I guess, after watching this movie are. I mean, don't show your kids this movie. It's very, very violent. <laughs> Actually but, do. You just might not uh, sleep well for a few nights because of the screams. Yeah, they, they might not. You may. They may be sleeping with you for a couple nights after you um, after you show them this. But uh, for me, it, the tension actually came from this like, 
are are you awake or are you asleep? And sort of the inevitability of sleep, like you can't, you can only stay awake for so long. And the sort of the power that you give different parts of your unconscious um, in this in this film. I also think that some of the dream effects were really interesting. Uh, all the characters run away from Freddy Krueger at some point, and they do the thing where like they're running away very slowly and falling down a lot. Which, I mean, if you've ever had a nightmare where you're trying to run away from something, that that's pretty much spot on. And of course, Wes Craven can't help himself. He has to have meta references to other horror franchises. So uh, one of the killings is very reminiscent of The Exorcist. There's a scene that is almost exactly from The Exorcist in this film. There's a scene that's very Halloween-like as well. And The Shining is definitely uh, referenced. Uh, There's a there's a giant fountain of blood at one point, and all I could think of was the scene where <laughs> the blood comes out of the, the elevator in The Shining. I, they, I mean, they all die in very, very creative, gory ways. And uh, and actually, this is something that Scream will meta-reference later, because there's a scene where Johnny Depp comes up to the window in the same way that Skeet Ulrich comes up to um, the window in Scream. So there's, you know, Wes Craven likes to, likes to mm. wink at you a lot in yeah. these movies. Anybody who lived through the 90s knows that Skeet Ulrich was, at the time, very much a, a poor man's Johnny Depp, I think. Sure, yeah. I think Skeet Ulrich has had a much better <laughs> <laughs> much better time of it lately. But I, And Andy really brought up the idea that, that at some point, once we got away from the 20s and the 30s, or maybe even then, well, I guess you brought up Abbott and Costello earlier. At some point, horror and comedy become intertwined in this really interesting way and i know andy you've already brought it up but but tessa you've got to talk about the coffee maker site yeah so that was the other thing i was gonna say so uh nancy is a great scream queen like (laughs) i think she might be my favorite scream queen now there's a scene where she is confronted in a dream by like a a teacher who's like terribly disfigured and she at the teacher asks her for a hall pass and she says damn your hall pass there's <laughs> which uh which was great it was it was some real real great energy on nancy's part and uh there's there's so throughout the whole film part of the tension again comes from like she's taking these pills to stay awake she's drinking a lot of coffee she's trying to like stay out of freddie's realm which are these dreams and there's a scene where she pretends that she's asleep so her mom will like leave her alone and so her mom, you know, like is looking at her and like, oh, she's so peaceful and like picks up this empty coffee pot that she's been, you know, drinking coffee out of the whole day and like leaves the room. And it's so nice. And then Nancy just hops out of bed, pulls a completely full steaming <laughs> pot of coffee from under the bed. It's, it's the whole coffee like, maker. Like the like whole, the whole, the whole <laughs> yeah, the whole thing, like just had a coffee maker under there. And, you know, it's just these really great gags like that that make this this movie really interesting. Uh, Freddy Krueger, I will say, is probably the campiest slasher. Oh, you haven't even gotten to the sequels yet, though. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I am aware that they get campier as they go along. I will say maybe that perhaps undercut some of the, the horror for me just because it does have sort of that campy humor. I wasn't a giant fan of him being disfigured because I think that's really a trend in these, you know, 70s and 80s slasher films was to have the the villain be disabled in some way. I honestly think he would have been scarier if he had just been like a dude in a sweater with like the <laughs> the knives there on his hands. There is nothing scarier than a dude in a sweater. <laughs> we know this from Knives Out, y'all. Uh, and then the the other the the runner up line is the what the hell are dreams anyway, which has to be one of my so deep. He's so deep, man. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that the main thing here is just there's a lot with the unconscious. There's a lot about blurring dreams and reality. There's a lot about uh, teenage sexuality, of course, following the tradition of a lot of horror films. If you have sex in a horror film, you will actually die shortly Mean afterwards. Girls warned you. Yeah. It's true. But yeah, so there, there's a lot with the unconscious. There's a lot of that dream logic, too, where things you'll think that they're awake and then suddenly things will start not making sense. So is this a recommend? Yeah, I would recommend if you're into slashers, I think this is a good one. I'm not going to say it's as good as Scream because I think Scream is the best, but I think that it's pretty good and I think it's a classic. And there are, if, if you like a lot of slashers, there are, I believe, six sequels. I wrote this down. Yes, yeah, six sequels, a TV series like David mentioned, and a crossover with Friday the 13th, which, as we know, is one of our friends from grad school's favorite movie. <laughs> so I will have to I'll have to watch, I guess, the rest of them so I can watch the crossover. I, th- I think what we've learned today is the, the horror films, the, the genre is just a hard thing to do. It's, it's, it's difficult to make something that's going to last. And, and I think, David, you mentioned it when we were talking about Dawn of the Dead. It's it's just the tension that happens between the horror moments that really, really make a good horror film. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, also, I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen Nightmare on Elm Street, um, but having a memorable visual like a, you know, a geyser of blood shooting out of a mattress or whatever, that that helps. <laughs> that, that'll make your movie last in people's memories. Well, and of course, the the scene where she's in the bathtub and you see the hand come out of the water. Yeah, there. I mean, there's a lot of great visuals in this um, as well. It's very iconic. It also ended a lot darker than I thought that it would. Again, I won't give away the ending, but it's it was one of those things where I'm like, oh, like I wasn't expecting that. And if you don't know, uh, the sequel I recommend watching is uh, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which is the seventh one, which is very, very meta. It's it's basically pre-Scream. It's like Scream, but a little bit more in universe. I'm a fan of meta stuff. Yeah, we're 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 fans of meta on this podcast. All right, that's it for Spooktober Week One. We did it. Tune in next week. We're gonna branch out from films next week, but not entirely. Tessa brews a love potion with the Love Witch. Andy watches a classic horror icon get a sequel. Is it a sequel? Or a reboot? Halloween 2018 is a sequel boot. (laughs) Sequel boot. And I'll talk about a horror anthology devoted to why technology is so scary, except for the one episode where it isn't. David, where can people find you? Tell us about your podcast and where we can find you. Uh, My podcast is called Battleship Pretension. You can find it at battleshippretension.com. And it's a uh, once or twice weekly, depending on uh, our schedules, uh, movie discussion podcast that doesn't have uh, a very uh, strict format. It's just me and uh, my co-host Tyler uh, and sometimes guests talking about whatever recent movie topic or recent movies we've seen uh, we feel like talking about. It's at Battleship Pretension. You can also find at BattleshipPretension.com plenty of other uh, written materials, written you know movie reviews and, and, and stuff like that. Uh, and yeah, follow me on Twitter at Davey Pretension. All right. Tessa? You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. Andy? You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd as well at Hebrews Pale Ale. Find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9 and on Letterboxd at Archie Leach 9. You can also find Tessa, Andy, and me at our new home, 
popculturisthub.com. Find us on Twitter at monkeybacklog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Send us your thoughts about your favorite scary movies, anything you'd like to see us talk about on future episodes or hear us talk about on future episodes, and anything else pop culture related. Our theme song, Hot Shot by Scott Holmes, can be found on scottholmesmusic.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Help us help you get that monkey off your backlog. Chase was a pop culture. Ah!